Welcome to the Bill Kelly Podcast. I'm Bill Kelly. The Kremlin has issued a warning to Finland after this country's leaders came out in favor of applying to join NATO. What are the implications? Well, we'll talk about that. A group of Canadian gymnasts have launched a class action lawsuit against Gymnastics Canada, alleging the sports governing bodies turned a blind eye to years of physical, sexual, and psychological abuse. Dr. Carla Edwards, mental health advisor for both Swimming Canada and Cycle Canada, will join us to talk about that. And Tampa Bay and the Leafs going to Game 7. Uh, we'll recap the game from last night and talk about what's going to be happening on the weekend. All coming up with the Bill Kelly Podcast, and it starts now. Today on the Bill Kelly Show on 900 CHML. Interesting uh, observations about what's happening in uh, Ukraine right now. We mentioned that yesterday on the program that it looks like uh, Ukraine forces are actually pushing back and pushing the Russians back toward their border in some areas. Uh, but as uh, President Zelensky uh, warned his uh, his citizens yesterday, don't get the impression that, you know, this is over anytime soon. It's still going to be happening. Uh, in a related issue, though, we know that uh, that Putin clearly has a problem with NATO uh, and being close to the Russian border. Uh, so he's not going to like that news, of course, that, uh, that the discussion seems to be ongoing and progressing quite well of Finland joining NATO. Well, they are right up against uh, Russia, if you look at a map. Well, the Kremlin has responded to that right now. They issued a warning yesterday to Finland after the country's leaders came out in favor of applying for NATO. Charles Dilladesma has details. The Kremlin has warned it may take retaliatory military technical steps after Finland's leaders says they favor joining NATO and Sweden could do the same within days in a historic realignment triggered by Russia's invasion of Ukraine. Two and a half months after Russia's invasion of the country sent a shiver of fear through Moscow's neighbours, Finland's president and prime minister announced on Thursday that the Nordic country should apply right away for membership in NATO, the military defence pact founded in part to counter the Soviet Union. I'm Charles Diladesma. Well, let's talk about the implications of that, and clearly the Russians aren't happy about this. Uh, pleased to welcome back to the program, Elliot Tepper, Emeritus Professor of Political Science with Carleton University. Elliot, thank you so much for the time. Great to have you with us again today. Oh, Good morning, Bill. Busy week, I guess, from a, a, a diplomatic standpoint. I mean, we, we talked a lot yesterday about what's going on on the ground, and there seems to be some uh, interesting observations, uh, especially from President Zelensky. But what do you make of uh, the, the move yesterday to almost fast-track the, 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 the Finnish application for NATO? And, and Sweden, as uh, Charles just mentioned, could be not that far behind. Yes. Mr. Putin is the father of the new Europe. That's one of the biggest takeaways, uh, and it's at the cost of Russia. The new Europe that's coming into existence, as we watch, is as a result directly of his uh, decision to invade Ukraine and the way they have behaved in that, in that activity and in, in committing war crimes along the way. What we have now is an extraordinary reversal of policy, long-standing, deep-seated policy by Finland and apparently Sweden as well. These are countries which, as a matter of their foreign policy identity, have declared themselves for a long time to be neutral. Sweden was neutral even in the Second World War, and Finland, uh, immediately after the Second World War, has said, that's our status as well. We aren't going to join any alliances. Now they have decided to do so. And not only that, but Germany has made a huge U-turn, saying we, we no longer will be um, not arming ourselves and not providing armaments to others. It's a, a full reversal. Switzerland has decided, oh, we might even join in on these sanctions. The EU is about to, uh, I think, internally reform itself. And NATO itself 
is undertaking a reevaluation, as our prime minister has put it, as to how they choose to behave in the future. What we see now with Finland joining, uh, as you pointed out, they've got a big long border, 1300 kilometer border uh, with Russia. So Russia has a much, I think it's doubled the NATO presence at its borders as a result of Mr. Putin's actions and Sweden will follow soon after. How close are we to, uh, well, you know, an accidental conflict, anything else? I mean, when there's this kind of buildup, we'll, we'll talk about the announcement from uh, the prime minister with uh, Latvia as well. Is, is that putting more pressure on Putin not to necessarily retreat, uh, but to be aggressive? We aren't sure how he will react to this increasingly obvious fact that he's putting his own country in jeopardy as a result of his own behavior. Uh, he could not have predicted that in eight days, in eight days, Bill, there would be a sanctions regime put on him that would make uh, Russia a pariah state. Those sanctions, of course, have increased considerably. I believe they're starting to really bite in ways that uh, he could not have predicted, and we don't see readily. But uh, the effect on the Russian economy and the behavior of the people inside the country is, are going to be severely affected uh, in the near future as a result of these sanctions. So he's he is... Um, going to react somehow to the fact that he is, as I say, the father of the new Europe, and it's a Europe that's organizing against Russia. The decision for, <laughs> it's amazing. Russia, as you know, we've talked about this, has been described as a nuclear armed gas station. They really only have one source of foreign income of any amount, and that's their oil and gas. And now Europe has decided to announce that they are getting off that oil and gas, uh, even if it costs them a little in the short run. And after that, they plan to get off fossil fuels altogether. And I think that's another side attribute of what we're seeing is the world will, in the short term, increase its dependence on fossil fuel. But uh, courtesy of Mr. Putin, it'll, it will accelerate getting off fossil fuels, which is, again, his primary source of income. To that end, it's it's, it's interesting. And you just asked, I guess, somewhat rhetorically, are these really having much of an impact? I, I would say yes, because now he's starting to address the sanctions and he didn't before he just said no big deal go ahead do what you want uh but he, and by the way in typical putin fashion he's blaming the west for this uh saying all this turmoil that's going on economically globally right now is because of of nato and it's got nothing to do with the fact that he invaded uh, you know ukraine uh he's he's still characterizing that as a defensive measure uh is it, i know nobody outside of russia is buying that elliot but is that even a message that can sell right now even in russia uh given some of the sanctions that have been in place and the impact they're having on on people the visible impact we can't go to eurovision we can't send our teams you know to play soccer uh it's going to bite much more severely as they find they can't either import or export things because the container ships don't show up it's hard to see the impact of withdrawing uh, not being able to deal on the financial markets, that doesn't affect day-to-day -day life, but other matters will soon. He does have complete control pretty well over the source of information and, this, and the uh, material that, shall we call it propaganda? The position of the government of Russia is what the people of Russia see and hear, and uh, they soon, however, will start to feel the sanctions, I think. You got to wonder how much longer this is going to go on, though. And and as you say, there, there's another round of them almost every day. Somebody else is announcing sanctions. You, you mentioned, of course, uh, their, their energy uh, exports is, is really the, the basis of their economy. Uh, so is wheat uh, and grain. Uh, there are some nations that rely on that. Uh, some relations that, re uh, that rely on Ukraine for, for that kind of product as well. Indeed. 
is there going to be a food crisis as a result of this? I mean, if, if these embargoes continue, uh, Russia won't be able to sh- ship this stuff out, and, and Ukraine certainly can't produce it right now. They're at war. Yes, we are having an inflationary crisis over uh, fuel as a result of, in part, perhaps exaggerated a bit, but in part because of what we see going on, uh, oil and gas prices, every time we go to the pump, we, we do see and feel that. But on the other side, there is a food crisis looming. We should pay attention to the fact that Russia has decided what they're going to do now is to increase their control over the geography of Ukraine. They're going to gain more territory, and then they're going to break that territory away. Mariupol is a major port. Uh, Odessa, if they can't conquer it, they can continue to blockade it so that we do not have, the world does not have the ability to gain access to Ukraine's wheat. Moreover, uh, apparently, after the invasion, a lot of that wheat was actually stolen. The stored wheat was taken by Russia wherever they could get their hands on it. There's going to be a shortfall of wheat in the world as a result of the Russian blockade and uh, military activities in Ukraine. Will they be able to get their grain out? Canada has been looked to, oh, good, now we can just fill that gap. But uh, Kiev Post has pointed out, we are nowhere near as Canada able to fill the kind of gap. So, yes, there's likely to be a food crisis uh, globally and certainly in, in Africa in particular as a result of Mr. Putin's behavior. Are we doing all we can on that guard? I, I, I totally agree with you. I mean, we can't just step up and say, hey, we can fill that void. We've got it all right here. Uh, but there are some critics that are suggesting, you know, okay, Canada may not have the military aid that some other nations might be able to offer, although you know, there was another announcement about that again yesterday. But yes. could we be stepping up a lot more when it comes to things like grain and, and frankly, fuels as well? I mean, the, there are some shortages right now. Germany and other countries that finally came along with the, uh, the sanctions, are, are, they're hurting right now, and they're looking for somebody to, to offer some relief. Yes, in the short term, there's going to be a worldwide search for oil. Uh, Mr. Putin, in fact, is doing reasonably well because the cost of fuel has gone up and he's, that's what they're selling. So he's getting more money. So are we, by the way. So the federal budget will reflect mm-hmm. the fact that more income. But uh, in the short term, yes, there's going to be a worldwide search for fuel. Uh, can Canada provide that? We have our own internal <clears throat> complications in getting our oil to, to uh, blue water, to tidewater. So uh, that's going to put a lot of pressure to abandon some of our own policies or change some of our own policies in the long run. However, it's going to put intense pressure on getting off the stuff altogether. So in the short term, I think the climate is also going to be paying a cost, but it might in the long term, perhaps because of Mr. Putin's adventurism and revanchism, uh, accelerate the trend to get off fossil fuels. But right now, one of the things I'm keeping an eye on is the uh, is what's going on with Iran. The U.S. is now going around the world saying to uh, Venezuela and Iran and Saudi Arabia, how about, how about getting more of your oil onto the market? And Iran is being blocked because of the, of the Iran uh, nuclear deal. And I'm increasingly worried that, not worried, I'm monitoring whether the Iran nuclear deal becomes a de facto an Iran oil deal in order to get their 1.2 or 1.3 million barrels a day back onto the market. There is going to be a global shortage of energy. Canada will have to find a way to play its role. Uh, the Prime Minister met with the uh, Latvian uh, 
prime minister Indeed. yesterday and, and announced that there was actually going to be an increase, uh, well, sending generals over there. I know we've sent supplies. Uh, we've sent uh, military over there for training. Uh, we've been doing that for a few years now with Ukraine. I think we're seeing the benefit of that now, the way the Ukrainian uh, forces are fighting and defending their country. Uh, but does is actually sending leaders over there. Uh, is this part of a NATO strategy uh, to just reinforce the borders, Elliot? Or are they concerned about a pending expansion of Putin's actions? Yes, this is what I was suggesting at the start, that we should frame this as Mr. Putin is the father of the new Europe. The existing NATO arrangements, and we've been, we should keep in mind, Canada has taken part in every single major, major NATO operation since its inception. Uh, we are part of... Um, an enhanced forward presence activity by NATO. We have been part of that uh, for, since the decision was made to put more troops from more countries uh, in the Baltic regions in Poland. We were allocated Latvia, other countries, Germany and others are taking part in that. They've, so we have had a tripwire, a tripwire exercise under Operation Reassurance to deter, to assure and to deter Russian aggression now we're building that up because, as <laughs> President Lithuania said, uh, you know, we thought they were tripwires, but they could just be speed bumps if Russia decides to come in. We better have, get more meaningful pressure on you know, soldiers on the ground. So there is going to be a change of NATO's posture, but also its philosophy uh, as a result of what Mr. Putin is doing. Is, is Article 5, and this was raised by our prime minister, sufficient? Uh, we wait for Russia to do something, and then we go ahead and push them back. Uh, perhaps we have to rethink what uh, NATO does going forward to be in, even more effective. So what was a moribund, I would call it a strategic drift going on within NATO, but also for the EU, has all been transformed, electrified, uh, revivified by this invasion. There's a fundamental reassessment. I don't think we see the magnitude of this. There's been a fundamental reassessment going on about the role of NATO, the role of EU, uh, how Europe is going to operate going forward when Switzerland drops some of its neutrality, when Finland, and we're learning this, by the way, Finland has said, we don't have to join NATO because we are ready to fight. And they, they're not only a long border, but now a much more potent military component to NATO is about to be added in that region. Uh, a lot of reassessment and fundamental reassessments going on as a result of Mr. Putin going into Ukraine. So Ukraine, in a, Ukraine whatever happens next in Ukraine, Europe, uh, NATO, uh, the new Europe, as, I, I, as I'm calling it, is a transformative fact. Germany is now going to rearm. Japan, by the way, is uh, talking about rearming. We have a fundamental shift as a result of what Mr. Putin is doing in Ukraine what he did and how he's how he's doing it uh interesting the, the way at, at the pace even with which uh, these things are happening these days too both on the diplomatic front and even on the battlefields too elliot always a pleasure thank you so much for the time have a great weekend and i, I know we'll talk again soon i look forward to these conversations bill uh, as do i thanks again elliot tepper emeritus professor of political science with, uh, with carlton university you're listening to the bill kelly show podcast on 900 chml rather troubling story uh, that uh, we want to get into uh in, in this segment of the program here and uh, it's if you've ever had young kids uh, women men boys girls uh training for competition uh, this is always a concern of course this is the worst case scenario. A, a group of Canadian gymnasts have now launched a class action lawsuit 
against Gymnastics Canada and six affiliated provincial organizations, alleging the sports governing bodies turned a blind eye to years of physical, sexual, and psychological abuse by coaches and other officials. Now, we want to remind you right off the beginning of the, uh, the segment here, uh, none of these allegations have been proven in court, uh, but clearly there's a, a movement here to try to move this into the courts. Uh, it's filed Wednesday in BC Supreme Court. It alleges that Gymnastics Canada presided over abusive culture in which athletes were subjected to inappropriate and sexualized touching from coaches, pushing into dangerous eating disorders, and regular sub, regularly rather subjected to uh, threats and humiliation. Joining us to talk about these uh, serious allegations is Dr. Carla Edwards. Uh, Dr. Edwards is an assistant clinical professor of psychiatry and behavioral neuroscience with McMaster University and a high-performance mental health advisor for both Swim Canada and Cycling Canada. Uh, doctor, a pleasure to have you back on the program. Thanks for joining us today. Thanks very much, Bill. It's great to be here. It's uh, frightening uh, to hear some of the details. I read about this just yesterday, and I thought, this is terrible. This is a parent's worst nightmare, but also a young athlete's uh, worst nightmare, if any of these allegations are proven to be true. We're always concerned about you know the desire to win, the desire to, to be the best you can be in, in any athletic endeavor like this. Is, is there a concern within the sports groups now, Doctor, that, that, that maybe we do push too far? Maybe we're trying to do things to, to athletes, to young athletes like this especially, uh, that could have lifelong scarring, physically and emotionally? I think now it's on more people's radar than it ever was before. I think this has been a concern, certainly, of the mental health profession uh, for, for a long time and trying to recognize and reconcile that, that delicate balance with the high-performance sport environment that requires such commitment and sacrifice and dedication to achieve the high levels of uh, performance in sport that, you know, is expected at those, uh, at those levels. But, um, I mean, we've been concerned for a while, but now we're seeing it uh, spill out into the media. We, we've known it's been there, but um, I'm really, really glad now it's on more on everybody's radar. Because I know the argument, the counter argument, and I'm sure this is going to come up when the legal proceedings actually begin, is look, at you want these people to exceed, you want them to, to be on the international stage and we want them to win, you want to win medals, we want to win competitions. But at the same time, you've got, the, as you say, the physical and mental health. How far do you push a young athlete and, and how do you reconcile those two goals? Well, I think you have to argue, you know, at what expense do we expect these human beings to achieve these outcomes. And again, whose outcomes and whose goals really are they? And are these individuals machines or human beings? I think we often that gets kind of lost in the mix there. I think there's also, uh, you know, a, an unfounded belief that individuals have to be pushed to the brink in order to achieve well. Those of us in the mental health field who support athletes would argue that, you know, your best performing athlete will always be your healthiest one. And if, if an athlete is able to achieve incredible things when they're not healthy, um, think about Simone Biles, Naomi Osaka, imagine how they would be if they were actually healthy. So I think old school sport holds on to the way that it was always done. And oftentimes people are coached based on how those coaches were coached. But we've seen high success in nations like Norway, uh, for example, in the most recent Olympics, where really years ago they started to rebuild their entire approach to sport, uh, more based on athlete well-being and balance versus being driven to the bone. And they are clearly seeing the benefits right now. Yeah, I, 
had this discussion with parents and, and, and parents groups, of course, and whether it's minor hockey, gymnastics, whatever the case might be. And, and I think it's a given now that we know that, yes, there are parents who drive their kids and way too hard, way too fast. Uh, some trying to live vicariously through their children, I guess. You know, I, I want him or her to, to be an elite athlete because I wanted to and I never made it. Right. Some pretty ugly stories there. But I think there's also an expectation that, yeah, but in this professional realm, coaching and, and these organizations, these, these governing bodies, they couldn't do that because they'd know better. And th this is, I, I think, one of the reasons why uh, this is so troubling to know that this is going on and that they knew it was going on. Absolutely. And I think... You know, some people are speculating at this point that what we're seeing is contagion where, oh, one sport group is reporting this. So now more sport groups are going to report this. And it's just a sense of contagion. I think what we're seeing is empowerment. And we're seeing this movement now where athletes are seeing other athletes come forward and be heard. And it's giving them power and strength to be able to tell their stories as well. So we're hearing it from the top level, which is, I think, fantastic because those are those are the groups that people are really going to pay attention to. You know, those established, successful Olympic medalists. Wow, if, if they're telling their story, then it must be true. But we have to understand that these pathways begin very, very early. And we see the seeds very early in early sports specialization. We hear of, you know, young athletes having to commit fully to hockey at the age of four in order to get anywhere. And parents having to mortgage their homes to move to different places to train in certain centers and hire certain coaches. It's, it's a huge sacrifice that a lot of families make and again at what expense overall and and the, the phenomenon that you referred to around parents living vicariously through their children is actually called achievement by proxy it's well studied and it's well established and there are clear patterns so we are really trying to make headway in youth sport organizations to help recognize these unhealthy pathways and really try to make a change from the beginning what what is the mindset though doctor when when you know you have an athlete a young athlete in this particular case that is being pushed and driven i mean uh, you know the, there are warning signs i guess like anything else that we need to look for about the mental impact that it's having i mean these people themselves the, the coaching and the governing organizations i assume are trained in, in these sorts of things and understand as you just mentioned if somebody is under huge duress phys physically or emotionally there's no way they can perform at their, their highest level, but they don't seem to understand that. It's almost, uh, as I was reading some of these terrible stories, that, and again, we want to remind our listeners that they haven't been proven, but these are rather severe allegations. It, it kind of reminds me of, you know, the, the young Marines that are be, you were trained, you know, and you got the, the drill sergeants that's screaming in their face and threatening them, and, you know, uh, you're mine, you know, the, and all this sort of stuff. And the young, how does, how does a young athlete in this particular case in gymnastics how do they come to grips with something like that? They want to do well. Uh, I'm sure they do. That's why they're in the sport in the first place. And they look at this coach or these organizations and say, well, this is my gateway into this. If I don't do what they want, I'm never going to, not only I may I not succeed, but I may not even be able to compete. You're exactly on point, Bill. It's the fear environment that really allows this type of toxicity and abuse to grow and fester for many, many years. And we, the young athletes find themselves in a situation where you know, parents are not present for these extreme practices and they're told essentially not to tell anybody. And if they don't come and work hard, they're not going to get anywhere. And in fact, they can't get anywhere if they don't train with them. And this fear is started. And even you know, parents are told by the organizations or the coaches, this is what has to happen. If this doesn't happen, your child is not going to get anywhere. And, and the children's identity begins to be wrapped up in what they're told and they start to believe these things. And literally every day in my clinic, I speak with athletes who tell me stories 
from the time they were three and four where this, these things begin and they, they go all summer, they go all winter. And I think their families get kind of wrapped up in what they're hearing of, of what needs to happen. And it just becomes this out of control train that eventually now is, is hitting a wall. Uh, it, it reminded me, of course, of the story. I, I think we talked about that about a year ago. But uh, the young hockey player, of course, in the Chicago Blackhawks organization, yes. uh, that was sexually assaulted uh, on a number of occasions, and and basically told, uh, you know, we own you. You know, if you don't do what I say, yes. you're finished in hockey. You know, I'll just send the word out that you're a malingerer, you're this, you're that, uh, and you'll yes. never get on the ice again. And and I, I don't, I, I can't say that this is what's going on, but the insinuation certainly is, is that you do what we say, when we say, and how we do tell you to do it. And if not, uh, then, you know, we don't want you, we don't need you, and you can give up on this sport, or we'll make sure that you're never in this sport again. That is exactly the message that is given. And it's not just physical, though, is it, Doctor? I mean, we're, we're hearing stories right now of, 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 of bulimia, of people you know, not eating properly as a result of this, not mm-hmm. sleeping properly, uh, as a result of coaches, you know, you know yes. shaming, body shaming. These are elite athletes to begin with. And they're told, you know, you're two pounds overweight. There's no wonder you can't perform. Absolutely. And it's very common in sports that are aesthetically driven, uh, you know, or, or, you know, their, their athletic attire is really, you know, small like divers swimmers wrestlers track athletes um, beach volleyball players body shaming and comments about your thighs are too thick or you know it's hard to get your dive if you don't lose these two inches on your quads or even in ballet any of the performing arts it's very very common and i think in some areas they're a little bit more aware of it so some pool decks have removed the scales you know where they used to weigh everybody in a line and tell everybody what everybody's weight was they're not doing that quite so much but the culture is definitely still there and the messages are definitely still being given. What about the training itself? And uh, there's one very troubling story here about uh, one athlete that I guess when she was 14 years old, she injured herself so badly that she actually, uh, a hamstring injury, actually tore a fragment of the bone off and is, is now somewhat, she's 32 years old now, this was quite some time ago, and the injury's still there. I mean, it basically ruined her career. And we hear of this in the professional realm. I mean, you know, get back in the game, you know, you you got to play hurt, these sorts of things. I don't think a lot of us understood that that's even happening at this level here too. Is When that does happen, we've always assumed it's an isolated case. It sounds like this is almost being condoned by the, the, the governing organizations. Yeah, these, these things definitely happen. And when they occur in youth athletes and they don't actually have an adequate opportunity to actually heal mentally and physically and reintegrate back into their sport in a safe manner, it really puts them at risk for ongoing injuries and just life-altering injuries that they carry with them for the rest of their lives. And again, this is not new information. There, there have been cases of this described, uh, for example, in USA Gymnastics with the ranch that the, the athletes used to have to go to. And some athletes, Christy Henrik really stays in my mind. She was a young athlete who had multiple fractures and eating disorders and was made to compete on her broken leg. And her mother even said, well, if, if she's not going to compete as a gymnast, then she's nothing. And she ended up dying quite young as a result of a combination of her injuries and eating disorders. So like, the cases are there, but I, I don't think there was enough attention brought to them. And it all seemed like it's in someone else's country and, oh, those systems are very extreme and what happened in USA Gymnastics would never happen here. But clearly, you know, the reports indicate that, that it is happening everywhere. And, um, you know, this is an incredible time in in canadian sport history and it's it's really remarkable to be part of it and to see it unfolding and i think it's about time 
Well, it's, some, it's one of these things, I guess, like so many other things, isn't it, Doctor? Where, yeah, of course it goes on, but it goes on over there. Uh, that's what right. that's what the Russians do with their athletes. We know that they take them out of their house when they're three years old, and uh, you know it, all of this stuff, and it couldn't possibly be happening in the land of the brave and the home of the free, and mm-hmm. on and on it goes. But it is happening, and uh, you know I, it's this is a worrisome story uh, to know that that's going on, and you know when that kind of pressure is put on a twelve year old, thirteen year old, or maybe even somebody younger than that. You know, you complain about your sore ankle or your sore hamstring or something, and all of a sudden you're the one that's the focus of, of their angst and saying, how, just, how dedicated are you? you know, are you just going to you know, go out there because you're injured? Or are you going to suck it up and be? That's, champions have to suck it up. I mean, that's the kind of pressure you put on. You know, we talk about, you know, young athletes, as their bodies aren't fully developed. Neither are their brains. Uh, and this, this can scar you for the rest of your life. That's correct. Scary situation. Correct. And your, some of these your point things. is... For sure. And your point is well taken. It seems to be going on elsewhere. And what I've seen over the years is that a lot of coaches have been brought to Canada to coach certain sports and certain organizations, and they bring with them their coaching cultures, and they just become integrated into Canada. And um, it's I'm not suggesting that it's just foreign coaches that bring this in, but um, I think some of their influences have certainly um, contributed to the trends that we've seen. As parents, how do we... As you say, some of these practices, a lot of them, according to these allegations, uh, were closed practices, so the parents would have no idea what's actually going on or what kind of treatment their child was getting uh, from these mm-hmm. coaches. Is there anything that we can do? I mean, is, I got, you know, I guess the first part of that answer always is going to be have a dialogue with your child and, and have some yes. honest discussions about this. Uh, but it's it's troubling. You, you've just outlined a couple of parents who actually were part of the problem here. Uh, I'm sure that happens, but there are other parents that would just be shocked to find this out. Yet, as the, the, one of the allegations mentioned here says, well, you know, you were t- if you told your parents this, then you were in trouble with the organization. So mm-hmm. how do you find that? How do you find that middle ground? How do you find that, uh, an opportunity to talk and find out just how your child is doing and how they're being treated? Yeah, all the work that I do with parents of youth athletes, really an emphasis is on you know, them providing a safe place for their athlete to be. And you know, oftentimes there's not an issue at all and, and there can be just normal dialogue and there's a healthy interaction at sport. But the youth athlete needs to understand or any athlete needs to understand that they, they can have a safe place to go to, you know, be heard and actually believed. And I think some young athletes over the years have tried to inform their parents and their parents would either say, shut up because you're going to lose your opportunity and I don't want to hear it or no way that person would never do that or that's, that's just what you need to do if you want to get anywhere in this sport. So I think some people have tried and then they, they realize that home is not necessarily a safe place where they can land with their concerns. So I really try to help parents be those safe people and, and separate themselves from being pseudo coaches at home. Um, they get enough coaching uh, in their sport environment. They really do need a break. And we try to emphasize, you know, the car drive home after practice or after competition, that they're really, that's a very uh, important time that an athlete, an athlete needs to have the time with either themselves or with their parents that's safe. Uh, but really the parents need to understand. And I, I really hope that, that these stories are going to help more parents understand that this is an issue and that they will be a little bit more ready to listen. Yeah. I had a, a young experience, I guess years ago, uh, my son was playing hockey and one of the parents, one of the other boys, uh, the ride home, as you say, after the, you know, the game uh, was what he did wrong in the game. 
shouldn't have done this. You shouldn't do yes, that. Why'd exactly. you do that? Uh, that's you know, no wonder some kids just at 13 or 14 say that's it. I don't want to play anymore. I, I, we do want, by the way, I think we need to characterize mm-hmm. this, don't we, Doctor? That not all organizations are like that. Not all coaches are like this. Uh, there are some people that are wonderfully dedicated and, and do a wonderful job with these young athletes and and actually care about the athletes' well-being too. But one is one too many when it, when it comes to this kind of abuse. You're absolutely right. And I think, uh, you know, accountability and responsibility and consequences are really important. And if organizations are able to establish safe reporting mechanisms, have established consequences and investigations that are transparent and legitimate and thorough, uh, then perhaps those bad apples can be weeded out and the environment can actually be safe. And I think the majority of coaches and staff and support people are are truly there for the athletes and are safe people, but we do have those uh, problematic abusers who are in there and they, but they can be in there a very long time, obviously. And uh, we're seeing now that, you know, decades of things can happen if the system is not changed and if consequences don't occur. Well, and as you say, there were sporadic of, uh, accusations of these sorts of things in the past. And uh, we want to, uh, I guess, empower people that, uh, that if that's the sort of thing going on to speak up and we need to provide a platform for those people, don't we? Absolutely. We need to be part of this movement for support, for sure. Doctor, a pleasure to have you back on the program. Thank you so much for your perspective on this. I really appreciate the time today. Thanks a lot, Bill. Have a great weekend. You too. Dr. Carla Edwards, Assistant Clinical Professor of Psychiatry and Behavioral Sciences at McMaster University. You're listening to the Bill Kelly Show podcast on 900 CHML. If you're uh, a little bleary-eyed this morning, you probably stayed up late for the overtime game. Braden Point scored in overtime as Tampa Bay Lightning defeated the Leafs by a score of 4-3 to three to force a, four, a Game 7, of course, in the first-round playoff series. Uh, that, by the way, is going to be tomorrow night in Toronto. Leaf captain John Tavares uh, scored a couple of goals for the Leafs, who are 0-8 with a chance to eliminate an opponent over the last month. Or, that's actually five playoff series now that this has gone on, uh, where they just can't put the other team away. Here's a little snippet from last night after the game. We had our looks in OT. Uh, unfortunately, we just weren't the ones to cash in on uh, our opportunities. So, you know, we work hard all year to earn home ice, and we get a great opportunity going home in front of our fans, um, try to close this thing out. So just regroup here. Um, look forward to the opportunity. This is what, what the game's all about. So um, is what it is. got to move on from here, regroup, and, and uh, look forward to the chance back at home. Well, that's uh, Tavares. He's the captain, and, uh, well, he punched in a couple of goals, so we can talk about some of the other guys who maybe still have to step it up a little bit. To uh, talk about that and what's going to happen, uh, of course, on the big game seven, uh, so pleased to welcome back to the program uh, Nick Alberga, who is a freelance hockey analyst and broadcaster. Nick, I assume you stayed up for the whole thing last night. Uh, listen, over and above you know, the passion that Leaf fans have, that was a pretty good hockey game last night, wasn't it? It was, but um, along those lines, Bill, and thanks for having me, it's like the same old story for Leafs fans, right? It's Groundhog Day again, that here we go again, <laughs> Game 7. Uh, you know, even similar to last year where they were 3-1 against Montreal, they just lack that killer instinct, if you will. It was a buzz phrase they used following last season, and now, you know, I, I sort of laugh at the Tavares quote because we're at a point where there's nothing these guys can say anymore. It's more so they got to go out there and try to prove themselves. But, yeah, it's... It's kind of intriguing for, from my point of view that we head here into a game seven and all the pressure is on the home team and not the team that's won back-to-back Stanley Cups here. Yeah, and that's uh, that's history catching up with them, I guess. Uh, did you also get the sense, though, that the Tampa just, well, they played with an awful lot of confidence. They did not mm-hmm. look at all tentative. I mean, they're the ones that technically had their backs to the wall last night, but you, you, you wouldn't sense that if you just didn't know the, the score of the series and just watching the game itself. 
No, there's certainly a common ease to that team. You know, that said, I think clearly there's lots of positives to take away from that game for the Maple Leafs. Now, ultimately, two of the three goals that Tampa scored before the OT winner were mistakes. And and simply put, you just can't make mistakes this time of year, whether it's that turnover of the blue line, Sorelli scores shorthanded, or it's the blatant Kerfoot turnover that leads to the opening goal of the game. You just can't make mistakes like that this time of year, especially like I thought the Leafs played a prototypical road game. I think all in all, they were pretty damn good last night especially yeah. in ot but vasilevsky's vasilevsky for a reason and ultimately that's why this game ended in favor of the home side and the Tampa bay lightning so i think if you're toronto toronto excuse me you have to continue to hammer away and just hope for the best here that's all you can do uh, in game seven yeah this yeah as you say there's no more platitudes that can be spoken right now mm -hmm. uh, no new strategies I mean, you know, they're not going to throw something at them, you know, that they, they haven't seen before. Uh, I know it comes back down to execution, I guess. But uh, like you mentioned the last time you were with us uh, before the game, um, mm -hmm. you know, Vasquez—he's playing okay, but not up to his standard. Well, he he kicked it up a couple of notches last night. Yeah, he did. Uh, but you know, the the fascinating thing—if you were to ask me going into this series, Bill, or tell me at least that Andre Vasilevsky would surrender at least three goals in each of the first six games—I'd call you crazy. And maybe you yep. are, but still, like it's—I would probably, you know, take the latter. And it just speaks more volume to to the pedigree and the track record and the resume of this guy. Like we are looking at greatness. Let's not make any mistake about it. Like in my opinion, Andre Vasilevsky will at some point in time go down as you know one of the best goaltenders ever like i feel strongly about this guy you look at his resume his track record what he's what he's done the guy's like oh i think he's 26 about to be 27 like there's so much more game to go and i think you know th that's what a lot of least fans feared in this series with was vasilevsky and i think the unfortunate part is he really hasn't hit his stride and hopefully for least fans it doesn't happen in this series and you just hope it certainly doesn't happen in game seven right yeah, this, uh, the story within the story, by the way, uh, is uh, just before the game, I guess, they announced, the, as they have this week, uh, the finals for the mid-year NHL trophies. Uh, and, of course, Austin Matthews nominated for the Hart Trophy. Uh, no surprise there as far as I'm concerned. Mm -hmm. No, no, definitely not. Like, I, I think at this point in time, and obviously I believe the voting's already taken place, he's going to win the Hart Trophy. I, I think, in, in my opinion, clearly it was between him and Connor McDavid. I just yeah. think you look at the importance of what Matthews has brought into the table throughout this season. I just think this year was his year, and he was the most valuable player. If you know you look directly at the term, Igor Shostorkin of the Rangers, uh, you always like to see a goalie involved in that conversation. Uh, not to say he was a distant third, but I do think it was a two-horse race, and I do think the right person will win in Austin Matthews here. Yeah, uh, you know, the old adage in playoffs is, you know, you want your best players to be your best players. Mm -hmm. It was so fascinating. I thought Austin Matthews actually played quite well last night and, uh, and a couple of helpers. Uh, and then I flipped over, of course, the other game, and be, you know, between the third period and the overtime. And Connor McDavid scores in the first minute of the game to kind of get mm -hmm. his team prepped up, too. So uh, those guys really know how to step up. But they, they don't look like they're playing under much pressure. But you could see, it, as you say, with a couple of the, the giveaways there, that uh, it, it seems as if these guys are a little tentative at that stage. And that could be a problem yeah it could be a problem and i and i think from a maple Leafs perspective i i think it is actually like a blessing in disguise for these guys to look across the rink and see guys who have been able to get over that hump like let's not forget how long it took tampa ultimately to get all you know get past the disappointments of losing and losing and losing in the stanley cup playoffs that's why i thought it was actually a perfect opponent for toronto because you make a you know a really really good point. You just look at some of the gamers on that roster who seemed to step up last night when it mattered. Andre Vasilevsky, Nikita Kucherov scores the tying goal. 
um, Braden Point scores the OT winner. Like these are the Marners, these are the Matthews, these are the Nylanders of the world for Tampa and, and their side of the spectrum. And they always seem to, to, to come up big. And that's the last thing I think this Leafs team is looking for, ultimately and finally winning a playoff series, is that signature goal. Like I don't know, I can't remember how many times Point has scored a signature goal or Stamkos or, or Kucherov or Hedman uh, or Vasilevsky with a big time save. That's a probably is missing in the arsenal of the Leafs. But again, you really can't teach that. Um, I, you know, I think it, it just grows into a player or, you know, a player is born with the clutch factor. Just quite, all, you know, honestly, there are players who just can't get to that level, sadly. And I, I think, you know, along those lines, some of these Leafs guys have turned a corner in this series. I think Austin Matthews has been tremendous. Thought he was great last night. I think Nylander, for the most part, has shown bursts. And I think Mitch Marner's a guy who still needs to get to another level. And and John Tavares, I think, has been really good the last couple of games, too. Yeah, it's funny you brought up the uh, the, the Tampa Bay experience. Uh, the first year they won the Stanley Cup, but it seems like 100 years ago now. <laughs> uh, but it was the same idea. You know, they knocked on the door and got knocked off. And I believe their first-round opponent the year they won was Montreal. who was a, And back then, the Canadians were a pretty good hockey team. And everybody thought, oh, well, you know, it's going to happen again. And they beat, I think they beat them in seven games. But just as you and I talked about earlier in the week, that's kind of slingshot them right through the playoffs after that. And they had a, a couple of great series, of course, and in the final, and, and they won the cup. And the Leafs need that. I think, you know, if they can get over this hump, uh, I think that, you know, there's even this year, I mean, if they can get past these guys on Saturday night, uh, I think they can have a run at this. Yeah, no, certainly. And I you know I think there's obviously lots of comparables out there. Like everybody likes to bring up Tampa. They get swept unceremoniously by Columbus when they were the best team in the league. And then they use it as sort of a, a polarizing moment, a rallying cry, and they come back the next year and then finally win the Stanley Cup. And, you know, I'd love to say that about the Leafs, but it's happened so many times where they lose to Boston last year, I think was just, um, you know, something that nobody could have foreseen. I covered that series, of course, as the Leafs radio host for Sportsnet 5.9 of the fan, and I, I was mm -hmm. mystified. Like, it was 3-1 in that series. The Maple Leafs had dominated the entire regular season, and they laid an egg in three straight games. And, you know, to this point, I think they've laid an egg in one of the six games so far, uh, you know, which is great news. But I think that, you know, my major takeaway heading into Game 7 is the first goal and the vast importance of it, more so from the Maple Leafs' perspective. I think Tampa would be comfortable if Toronto scored first, but Toronto needs that confidence right off the opening draw, or I think they're in trouble. If you remember last year, especially in game seven, Montreal scored and, and the life was sucked out of the Maple Leafs. They need that confidence booster right away to tell them, hey, we can actually do this. If the the Bolts score first, uh, that's going to take the crowd out of the game, and that, that's mm -hmm. the last thing the Leafs need at that stage. Oh, definitely. And I, I will add too. like, I, I've been really, really impressed with the crowd, you know, as somebody who's covered the team, um, who used to be a big, big fan of the team. Um, I think this crowd has been exceptional and it's been a long time coming. Like I can remember the, you know, this crowd, um, this fired up, I would say since the last time the least won a playoff series in 2004, like I'm talking the Pat Quinn era, the Matt Sundin era where that place was jumping. And I, I do think it adds a bit. Like, look at the Toronto Raptors, for example. The home court yeah. is phenomenal because the crowd is phenomenal. I just think it adds a layer, um, you know, that you need sometimes in terms of a boost against the opponent. And I think we're seeing that in this series. And you just look how fired up the players get with the home crowd. So I expect them to be fired up, loud, boisterous uh, in Game 7. And I do think that could help the Maple Leafs and be in their advantage. So what's in their head right now? I mean, they're, they're going to practice today, game day tomorrow. As we mentioned, I mean, you know, this is a, a, a piece of history as far as guys like Matthews and Marner are concerned. They were, weren't even born the last time the Leafs won a Stanley Cup. 
but are, are they is the game seven thing going to get in their heads right now? Like here we go again. Or can they, can they just you know compartmentalize that and move on? Yeah, like that's the the million dollar question, Bill. Because uh, I think this is what all these psycho- psychology sessions have paid for over the last three years. And you know, I'm not trying to be facetious with that at all. How could it not? As a human being, knowing what yeah. this team has been through, knowing what these players, you know, the core has been through, how could you not think about it, right? And again, as we we started the interview, like, like there's literally nothing they can say. You know, Austin Matthews can't say anything. John Tavares, the captain, can't say anything. They literally have to come out and show it, show they're a different team. Um, and you know, ultimately, I think if they don't, it's going to be the same old, same old story in Toronto. And I think somebody will lose their job for it. Like we're at that point. It's unfortunate. There's pressure on this team. But it's time to go out and prove that, hey, we've gotten through this. Because I'll tell you something. There was a lot of quotes last spring. We're, we're a different team. We're going to learn from this. Well, have they learned from it is the question. And we'll find out on Saturday, I guess. We, we sure will. Uh, Nick, as always, thanks so much for this. Enjoy the game Saturday and enjoy the weekend, too. We'll talk again my, soon. My pleasure. Thanks so much for having me. And you specifically, enjoy Saturday afternoon, Game 7, Carolina yeah. and the Boston Bruins. Yeah, I know. Well, well, well uh, I'm I'm just as nervous about that. So we'll see. I, I'm just gonna be still drowning in my tears if it turns out the way I was afraid it might turn out in Game Seven by the time the Leafs puck drop. Anyway, hanging in there, Nick. You, we'll talk again next week about what's going to happen in the next round. Sounds good, Bill. Take care. You betcha. Nick Elberger, of course, freelance hockey analyst and broadcaster. The Bill Kelly Show, weekdays from 9 to noon on 900 CHML. The Bill Kelly Podcast is available on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts from. You can also listen to The Bill Kelly Show weekdays from 9 till noon on 900 CHML. I'm Bill Kelly. Thanks again for listening. And don't forget to subscribe to the podcast. It's free, so you never miss an episode. And make sure that you rate and review.